Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Anna Quarantina. I'm really excited to finally start reading Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, often considered the greatest novel of all time, and I'm only slightly ashamed it took me a literal pandemic to start, but here we are. Considering the density of the novel, I will read roughly ten pages a night. I found in my research on how to read, enjoy, and understand the story that it is recommended to read in small doses. Apparently, when it was released, it came out in little bits like that. I also recommend a beverage of your choosing to enjoy as we sit back, relax, and finally read Anna Karenina. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. All was confusion in the Oblonsky's house. The wife had found out that the husband was having an affair with their former French governess, and had announced to the husband that she could not live in the same house with him. The situation had continued for three days now, and was painfully felt by the couple themselves, as well as by the members of the family and household. They felt that there was no sense in their living together, and that people who meet accidentally at any inn have more connection with each other than they, the members of the family and household of the Oblonskys. The wife would not leave her rooms. The husband was away for the third day. The children were running all over the house as if lost. The English governess quarreled with the housekeeper and wrote a note to a friend, asking her to find her a new place. The cook had already left the premises the day before, at dinner time. The kitchen maid and coachman had given notice. On the third day after the quarrel, Prince Stepan Arkadyevich Oblonsky, Steva as he was called in society, woke up at his usual hour, that is, at eight o'clock in the morning, not in his wife's bedroom, but in his study, on a Morocco sofa. He rolled his full, well-tended body over on the springs of the sofa, as if wishing to fall asleep again for a long time, tightly hugged the pillow from the other side, and pressed his cheek to it. But suddenly he gave a start, sat up on the sofa, and opened his eyes. Yes, yes, how did it go? he thought, recalling his dream. How did it go? Yes, Albin was giving a dinner in Darmstadt. No, no, not in Darmstadt, but something American. Yes, but this Darmstadt was in America. Yes, Albin was giving a dinner on glass tables. Yes, and the tables were singing El Mio Tesoro. Only it wasn't El Mio Tesoro, but something better. And there were some little carafes, which were also women he recalled. Stepan Arkadyevich's eyes glittered merrily, and he fell to thinking with a smile. Yes, it was nice. Very nice. There were many other excellent things there, but one can't say it in words, or even put it into waking thoughts. And noticing a strip of light that had broken through the side of one of the heavy blinds, he cheerfully dropped at his feet from the sofa, felt for the slippers trimmed with gold morocco that his wife had embroidered for him, a present for last year's birthday, and following a nine-year-old habit, without getting up, 
reached his hand out to the place where his dressing gown hung in the bedroom. And here, he suddenly remembered how and why he was sleeping not in his wife's bedroom, but in his study. The smile vanished from his face, and he knitted his brows. Oh, 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 he moaned, remembering all that had taken place. And in his imagination, he again pictured all the details of his quarrel with his wife all the hopelessness of his position, and most painful of all, his own guilt. No, she won't forgive me, and can't forgive me. And the most terrible thing is that I'm guilty one in all of this. Guilty, and yet not guilty. That's the whole trauma, he thought. Oh, 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 he murmured with despair, recalling what for him were the most painful impressions of this quarrel. Worst of all had been the first moment when, coming back from the theater, cheerful and content, holding a huge pear for his wife, he had not found her in the drawing room. To his surprise, he had not found her in the study either, and had finally seen her in the bedroom with the unfortunate, all-revealing note in her hand. She, this eternally preoccupied and bustling and, as he thought, none too bright dolly, was sitting motionless, the note in her hand, looking at him with an expression of horror, despair, and wrath. "'What is this?' "'This,' she asked, pointing to the note. And in recalling it, as often happens, Stepan Arkadyevich was tormented not so much by the event itself as by the way he had responded to these words from his wife. What had happened to him at that moment was what happens to people when they are unexpectedly caught in something very shameful.' He had not managed to prepare his face for the position he found himself in with regard to his wife now that his guilt had been revealed. Instead of being offended or denying, justifying, asking forgiveness, even remaining indifferent, any of which would have been better than what he did, his face quite involuntarily, reflexes of the brain, thought Stepan Arkadyevich, who liked physiology, smiled all at once, its habitual, kind, and therefore stupid smile. That stupid smile. He could not forgive himself. Seeing that smile, Dolly had winced as if from physical pain, burst with her typical vehemence into a torrent of cruel words, and rushed from the room. Since then, she had refused to see her husband. That stupid smile is to blame for it all, thought Stepan Arkadyevich. But what to do, then? What to do? he kept saying despairingly to himself, and could find no answer. Stepan Arkadyevich was a truthful man concerning his own self. He could not deceive himself into believing that he repented of his behavior. He could not now be repentant that he, a 34-year-old handsome, amorous man, did not feel amorous with his wife, the mother of five living and two dead children, who was only a year younger than he. He repented only that he had not managed to conceal things better from her, but he felt all the gravity of situation, and pitied his wife, his children, and himself. Perhaps he would have managed to hide his sins better from his wife had he anticipated the news would have such an effect on her. He had never thought the question over clearly, but vaguely imagined that his wife had long suspected of being unfaithful to her, and was looking the other way. It even seemed to him that she— a worn-out, aged, no longer beautiful woman, 
not remarkable for anything, simple, merely a kind mother of a family, ought in all fairness to be indulgent. It turned out to be quite the opposite. Ah, terrible! I, I, terrible! Stepan Arkadyevich repeated to himself, and could come up with nothing. And how nice it all was before that! What a nice life we had! She was content, happy with the children. I didn't hinder her in anything. Left her to fuss over them and the household however she liked. True, it's not nice that she used to be the governess in our house. Not nice. There's something trivial, banal, to courting one's own governess. But what a governess. He vividly recalled Mademoiselle Roland's dark, roguish eyes and her smile. But while she was in our house, I never allowed myself anything. And the worst of it is that she's already... It all had to happen at once. I, 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 but what to do, what to do? There was no answer, except the general answer life gives all the most complex and insoluble questions. That answer is, one must live for the needs of the day. In other words, become oblivious. To become oblivious in dreams was impossible now, at least till nighttime. It was impossible to return to that music sung by carafe women, and so one had to become oblivious in the dream of life. We'll see later on, Stepan Arkadyevich said to himself, getting up. He put on his gray dressing gown with the light blue silk lining, threw the tasseled cord into a knot, and, drawing a goodly amount of air into the broad box of his chest, went up to the window with the customary brisk step of his splayed feet, which so easily carried his full body raised the blind, and rang loudly. In response to the bell, his old friend, the valet, Matvey, came at once, bringing clothes, boots, and a telegram. Behind Matvey came the barber with the shaving things. Any papers from the office? Stepan Arkadyevich asked, taking the telegram and sitting down in front of the mirror. On the table, Matvey replied, glancing inquiringly with sympathy at his master. And after waiting a little, he added with a sly smile, Someone came from the owner of the livery stable. Stepan Arkadyevich said nothing in reply and only glanced at Matvey in the mirror. From their eyes, which met in the mirror, one could see how well they understood each other. Stepan Arkadyevich's eyes seemed to ask, Why are you saying that? As if you didn't know. Matvey put his hands in his jacket pockets, thrust one foot out, and looked at his master silently, good-naturedly, with a slight smile. I told them to come next Sunday, and till then not to trouble you or themselves needlessly, he uttered an obviously prepared phrase. Stepan Arkadyevich understood that Matvey wanted to joke and attract attention to himself. Tearing open the telegram, he read it, guessing at the right sense of the words, which were garbled as usual, and his face brightened. Matvey... My sister, Anna Arkadevna, is coming tomorrow, he said, stopping for a moment the glossy, plump little hand of the barber, who was clearing a pink path between his long, curly side whiskers. Thank God, said Matvey, showing by this answer that he understood the significance of this arrival in the same way as his master. That is, that Anna Arkadevna, Stepan Arkadyevich's beloved sister, 
might contribute to the reconciliation of husband and wife. Alone or with her spouse? asked Matvey. Stepan Arkadyevich, unable to speak because the barber was occupied with his upper lip, raised one finger. Matvey nodded in the mirror. Alone. Shall I prepare the rooms upstairs? Tell Darya Alexandrovna whatever she decides. Darya Alexandrovna, Matvey repeated, as if in doubt. Yes, tell her. And here, take the telegram. Let me know what she says. Testing her out, Matvey understood. But he said only, very well, sir. Stepan Arkadyevich was already washed and combed and was about to start dressing when Matvey, stepping slowly over the soft rug in his creaking boots, telegram in hand, came back into the room. The barber was no longer there. Darya Alexandrovna told me to inform you that she is leaving. Let him do as he, that is, you, pleases, he said, laughing with his eyes only and putting his hands in his pockets and cocking his head to one side. He looked fixedly at his master. Stepan Arkadyevich said nothing. Then a kind and somewhat pathetic smile appeared on his handsome face. Eh, Matvey, he said, shaking his head. Never mind, sir. It'll shape up, said Matvey. Shape up? That's right, sir. You think so? Who's there? Stepan Arkadyevich asked, hearing the rustle of a woman's dress outside the door. It's me, sir, said a firm and pleasant female voice, and through the door peeked the stern, pockmarked face of Matryonya Filimonovna, the nanny. What is it, Matryosha? Stepan Arkadyevich asked, going out to the door. Although Stepan Arkadyevich was roundly guilty before his wife, and felt it himself, almost everyone in the house, even the nanny, Darya Alexandrovna's chief friend, was on his side. Well... "'What is it?' he asked dejectedly. "'You should go to her, sir. Apologize again. Maybe God will help.' "'She's suffering very much. It's a pity to see. "'And everything in the house has gone topsy-turvy. "'The children should be pitied. "'Apologize, sir. No help for it. "'After the dance you must pay the—' "'But she won't receive me. "'Still, you do your part. "'God is merciful.' Pray to God, sir. Pray to God. Well, all right. Go now, said Stepan Arkadyevich, suddenly blushing. Let me get dressed. He turned to Matvey and resolutely threw off his dressing gown. Matvey was already holding the shirt like a horse collar, blowing away something invisible, and with obvious pleasure he clothed the pampered body of his master in it. After dressing, Stepan Arkadyevich sprayed himself with scent, adjusted the cuffs of his shirt, put cigarettes, wallet, matches, a watch with a double chain, and seals into his pockets with an accustomed gesture, and having shaken out his handkerchief, feeling himself clean, fragrant, healthy, and physically cheerful despite his misfortune, went out, springing lightly at each step to the dining room, where coffee was already waiting for him and next to the coffee, letters and papers from the office. He sat down and read the letters. One was very unpleasant, from a merchant who was buying a wood on his wife's estate. This wood had to be sold, but now, before his reconciliation with his wife, 
It was out of the question. The most unpleasant thing here, that mixed financial interest into the impending matter of the reconciliation, and the thought that he might be guided by those interests, that he might seek a reconciliation with his wife in order to sell the wood, was offensive to him. Having finished the letters, Stepan Arkadyevich drew the office papers to him, quickly leafed through two files, made a few marks with a big pencil, then pushed the files away and started on his coffee. Over coffee, he unfolded the still damp morning newspaper and began to read it. Stepan Arkadyevich subscribed to and read a liberal newspaper, not an extreme one, but one with the tendency to which the majority held. And though neither science nor art nor politics itself interested him, he firmly held the same views on all these subjects as the majority, and his newspaper did, and changed them only when the majority did, or rather, he did not change them, but they themselves changed imperceptibly in him. Stepan Arkadyevich chose neither his tendency nor his views, but these tendencies and views came to him themselves, just as he did not choose the shape of a hat or a frock coat, but bought those that were in fashion, and for him, who lived in a certain circle, and who required some mental activity, such as usually develops with maturity, having views was as necessary as having a hat. If there was a reason why he preferred the liberal tendency to the conservative one, also held to by many in his circle, it was not because he found the liberal tendency more sensible, but because it more closely suited his manner of life. The liberal party said that everything was bad in Russia. And indeed, Stepan Arkadyevich had many debts and decidedly too little money. The Liberal Party said that marriage was an obsolete institution and was in need of reform. And indeed, family life had given Stepan Arkadyevich little pleasure and forced him to lie and pretend, which was so contrary to his nature. The Liberal Party said, or rather implied, that religion was just a bridle for the barbarous part of the population. And indeed, Stepan Arkadyevich could not even stand through a short prayer service without aching feet, and could not grasp the point of all these fearsome and high-flown words about the other world when life in this one could be so merry. At the same time, Stepan Arkadyevich, who liked a merry joke, sometimes took pleasure in startling some simple soul by saying that if you want to pride yourself on your lineage, why stop at Rurik and renounce your first progenitor, the ape? And so the liberal tendency became a habit with Stepan Arkadyevich, and he liked his newspaper, as he liked a cigar after dinner, for the slight haze it produced in his head. He read the leading article, which explained that in our time it was quite needless to raise the cry that radicalism was threatening to swallow up all the conservative elements, and that it was the government's duty to take measures to crush the hydra of revolution, that, on the contrary, in our opinion, the danger lies not in the imaginary hydra of revolution, but in a stubborn traditionalism that impedes progress, and so on. He also read yet another article, a financial one, in which mention was made of Bentham and Mill, and fine barbs were shot at the ministry. With his peculiar quickness of perception, he understood the meaning of each barb, by whom, and against whom, and on what occasion it had been aimed. And this, as always, gave him a certain pleasure. But today, this pleasure was poisoned by the recollection of Matryona Filimonovna's advice and of the unhappy situation at home 
He also read about Count Bust, who was rumored to have gone to Wiesbaden, and at the end of Grey Hair, and about the sale of a light carriage, and a young person's offer of her services. But this information did not, as formally, give him a quiet, ironic pleasure. Having finished the newspaper, a second cup of coffee, and a kolatch with butter, he got up, brushed the crumbs from his waistcoat, and expanding his broad chest, smiled joyfully, not because there was anything especially pleasant in his heart. The smile was evoked by a good digestion. But this joyful smile at once reminded him of everything, and he turned pensive. Two children's voices, Stepan Arkadyevich recognized the voices of Grisha, the youngest boy, and Tanya, the eldest girl, were heard outside the door. They were pulling something and tipped it over. I told you not to put passengers on the roof, the girl shouted in English. Now pick it up. All is confusion, thought Stepan Arkadyevich. Now the children are running around on their own, and going to the door, he called them. They abandoned the box that stood for a train and came to their father. The girl, her father's favorite, ran in boldly, embraced him, and hung laughing on his neck, delighting, as always, in the familiar smell of scent coming from his side whiskers. Kissing him finally on the face, which was red from bending down and radiant with tenderness, the girl unclasped her hands and was going to run out again, but her father held her back. "'How's Mama?' he asked, his hand stroking his daughter's smooth, tender neck. "'Good morning,' he said, smiling to the boy who greeted him. He was aware that he loved the boy less, and always tried to be fair, but the boy felt it and did not respond with a smile to the cold smile of his father. "'Mama?' "'Mama's up,' the girl replied. Stepan Arkadyevich sighed. "'That means again she didn't sleep all night,' he thought. And is she cheerful? The girl knew that there had been a quarrel between her father and mother, and that her mother could not be cheerful, and that her father ought to know it, and that he was shamming when he asked about it so lightly. And she blushed for him. He understood it at once, and also blushed. I don't know, she said. She told us not to study, but to go for a walk to Grandma's with Miss Hall. Well, go then, my Tanchkuroka. Ah, yes. Wait, he said, still holding her back and stroking her tender little hand. He took a box of sweets from the mantelpiece where he had put it yesterday and gave her two, picking her favorites, a chocolate and a cream. For Grisha, the girl said, pointing to the chocolate. Yes, yes. And stroking her little shoulder once more, he kissed her on the nape of the neck and let her go. The carriage is ready, said Matvey. And there's a woman with a petition to see you, he added. Has she been here long? asked Stepan Arkadyevich. Half an hour or so. How often must I tell you to let me know at once? I have to give you time for your coffee at least, Matvey said in that friendly rude tone, at which it was impossible to be angry. Well, quickly send her in, said Oblonsky, wincing with vexation. The woman, Mrs. Kalinin, a staff captain's wife, was petitioning for something impossible and senseless. But Stepan Arkadyevich, as was his custom, sat her down, heard her out attentively without interrupting, and gave her detailed advice on whom to address and how. And even worse, and even wrote 
briskly and fluently in his large, sprawling, handsome, and clear-handed writing. A little note to the person who could be of help to her. Having dismissed the captain's wife, Stepan Arkadyevich picked up his hat and paused, wondering whether he had forgotten anything. It turned out that he had forgotten nothing, except what he had wanted to forget. His wife. Ah, yes, he hung his head, and his handsome face assumed a wistful expression. Shall I go or not, he said to himself, and his inner voice told him that he should not go, and that there could be nothing here but falseness, that to rectify, to repair their relations was impossible, because it was impossible to make her attractive and arousing of love again, or to make him an old man incapable of love. Nothing could come of it but falseness and deceit, and falseness and deceit were contrary to his nature. But at some point I'll have to. It can't remain like this, he said, crying to pluck up his courage. He squared his shoulders, took out a cigarette, lit it, took two puffs, threw it into the mother-of-pearl ashtray, walked with quick steps across the gloomy drawing room, and opened the other door to his wife's bedroom. Whew! That was ten pages, folks. Um, I'm really liking this so far. It's very detailed, and I imagine that's going to be persistent throughout the book. So I think it's a good move to read it slowly and try to take it in. But I'm I'm feeling I'm feeling the story so far and pretty into it. I hope you are too. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so on the main page of the Anchor FM podcast page. Uh, also, if you just want to listen, that's totally okay too. These are rough times, and if anything helps, like reading a story before bed and having you listen, that's enough for me. Thank you. Good night.